Hello, and welcome to Office Hours. If you're finding us here on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. There you can uh, put in your questions and become the producers of the show that direct the directions that we head into. Um, every day, we usually have uh, an area of special interests uh, for you to ask our panelist or an individual. On Saturdays, it's uh, education hour, and we're looking forward to uh, Dave taking over about the midpoint in the show where we'll look at the one learning resource. So we're looking forward to that. We also have our educators with us today. So if you have any general education questions, we have uh, plenty of expertise on the panel. Let's get our uh, questions started. Thanks, Josh. The first one comes to us from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. And Gordon asked, the other day, the DG Disaster Recovery Router was shown on office hours, and it comes with two gigabytes of bonded cellular data per month. When streaming at 1080p30, how long will two gigabytes last? And he's got a link there for information. Guy, Guy? Yeah, generally, you're looking at about three gigs an hour at uh, at 8,000 kilobits per second. So if you use that as a round about number, you're probably looking at what, like 40, 40 minutes. We did use that unit uh, at CES. Uh, here's what it looks like. Um, we had it in the back of Keenan's Jeep and uh, it's got three modems in this unit. Uh, I think the carriers are AT&T, Verizon and T-Mobile. Uh, he's able to provide such a great deal because he's uh, he's bulk buying and then reselling it. So, like, I, it would be super expensive. In fact, th this is my uh, little Netgear, and, and I've had bills in 24 hours for 500 bucks for using this thing like crazy. So I was at a production where I said, hey, we're taking over the entire uh, bandwidth. Your team now has this. <laughs> so I, I basically hogged it all for, for our stream and, and cut everybody else off. And I said, hey, it's going to cost money. It's going to cost you know hundreds of dollars to use uh, my AT&T plan. They took it because it, it, it was a show that mattered. So you just got to figure out... Uh, do I want to go H.264 or and and use like OBS or something like that? But you could also half your data rate with H.265. So there's some hardware encoders to look at. Now YouTube won't take take H.265 natively, so you have to bounce it off something else. So this is where other services can come in handy to help you save uh, on that bandwidth cost and also just getting out of locations where there might not be a, a good connection. Thank you, Guy. Go ahead, John. The gentleman from Washington crushed that one. The only thing I had to add is uh, Keenan sent me a little message. $7.68, that's kind of weird, per gigabyte after the two gig is completed. Fantastic. Looks like a great deal. If you haven't caught that one, go back and check out that episode. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, and this is the same uh, hardware and software that uh, we saw used at Cinegear and at NAB last year. So this isn't an, an unknown variable. The, this has been a solid, uh, I mean, it was a, a kind of a test for NAB, but it worked. And then Cinegear, it really worked. I don't think I saw a single hit. Uh, I rewatched that uh, entire episode and I didn't see a single hit, but that's downtown LA. I mean, and you've got three of the top carriers and maybe there's inside of the facility, there might be some uh, antennas that help with uh, repeating that cellular signal inside. So again, it, it's a matter of testing. Sometimes you get lucky, sometimes you get unlucky, but uh, this is where it's nice to go knock on somebody's door, even if it's the neighbor down the way, can I borrow some internet and give you a couple hundred bucks of, uh, let me uh, run a cable from your house all the way down over to there. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I, I know we, we used um, Stream Voodoo as our partners and Mr. Net uh, for the, the box as well. And uh, yeah, uh, fantastic um, um, trials for us. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a fantastic service. And I, I don't know how, how available, um, uh, Keenan, maybe you can uh, type into the chat just how available those services are for the reselling. Sounds like a really good deal. Let's go to our next question. Next one comes in from Jen Zolson in Sandpoint, Idaho. And Jen says, has anyone gotten a pair of the new HomePods in and tested them with Apple TV? How do they compare to a MBO soundbar? Go ahead, Dave. Well, the MBO soundbar is way out of my budget range, so I can't say that I have one to compare it to. I also am really keen on these uh, HomePods. Uh, when they first came out, I really looked at the specs. I thought they could apply to my situation. And I was disappointed that a pair couldn't do stereo for your Apple TV. Apparently, that's all been fixed, and it probably even sounds better because they've tweaked the new HomePods. So I am looking forward to being able to buy some get them installed on my Apple TV in my home system and uh, see just what kind of spatial audio uh, my living room has. Go ahead, Keely. I'm echoing Dave's comments there because I took a look at the Ambio and the price point uh, was appropriate for a Sennheiser product and not appropriate for my own budget. And I think we can't really try to throw uh, Apple audio products into that prosumer mix but from everything I've read and the reviews that I've seen about the pairing, that's going to be what makes the difference between what I've been experiencing. I have a first-gen HomePod using that as my primary TV speaker and trying to watch shows with that. The vocals have been very indistinct. Uh, that also could be a function of my age, but let's not talk about that. So I'm in the same boat as Dave. I'm looking forward to getting the two to pair together and sync those up and see how they do. And frankly, that's what my budget can afford. So I'm I'm excited about it. Go ahead, Bill. I got the original, I got a pair of the original HomePods. At first, they were tough to kind of manage in the early days of them. And this is back when they first came out. Uh, they did not pair well with things. They did not work. But over the course of time, Apple really must have spent a lot of time in research and development because at one point they just started working and working remarkably well. And a pair of those, the sound field is stunning. I will say I was gobsmacked at the amount of bass that was still articulate, but huge. I got really scared because I was worried that the neighbors around me would start yelling at me like I was driving down with a boombox car or something like that, because it was just so astonishing to fill a space with those two little speakers with that much sound. I really enjoyed them, and they're still my main speakers in my primary living room view on one listen place, and it, they're just great. And I wonder, Bill, as far as um, not disappointing your, your neighbors, I know that uh, having sound sources closer to the listener is one way of not, not having to to uh, crank the volume up so much. So maybe the maybe one advantage to a sound bar that has to sit in front of the display as opposed to home pods, it might be a I'm little a little bit in Keely's space though, because I you know to I, I keep wanting to push them up high to get more articulation because of that. Um, there is crispness in there and I can hear dialogue okay, but my hearing is diminished at my age. So I tend to push them up high. And when I do that, I get that much more of that huge bottom end that is kind of scary. Because two little speakers putting out that much low-frequency energy is not something I'm used to. So it's just a process of who you are, where you are, and how loud your neighbors will tolerate, I think. 
Fair enough. Uh, go ahead, Dave. Well, I, I wanted to bring it back to not just TV watching. Um, I'm a I'm a guy who likes to have music on, so I'm looking forward to being able to listen to my record collections at a different kind of spatial arrangement, uh, the room tuning and all the rest. So I, I think, just not for Apple TV, because as has been discussed before, uh, even here at Office Hours, uh, the way people are mixing movies and television these days is to enhance the mumble and not not the clear dialogue. So people are having a, a little bit of adjustment for these kind of systems that sound bars and all the rest that are trying to help us hear what's going on in a movie, but somehow it's just not working for the mixing guys and they're not able to get it to a standard, which is like the theater standard. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, it being a, a, a cheaper product, of course, buying two of them is a little different than just having the one. Uh, so maybe if you bought a five-in-one system we're using HomePods, uh, it would equal one of these uh, Ambios. Yeah, Bill? It might. I, I tell you, I'm always, I'm constantly, if there are people over and we're having a little soiree or something, I'll turn them down and down and down. I, I can't tell you the number of times I said, hey, Siri, cut the volume in half. And she does. And it's like still maybe a little too much music. They are very efficient and they fill space really well without getting too loud. Uh, it's just personal. And at that point, you're at personal things. It, it is a wide stereo field. I haven't sent it any 5.1 content or something like that and see how it, it makes that into a sound field. But I just really enjoy living with them. I think they're good speakers. All right. Very good. And um, if you haven't already, we have... Uh, Plenty of room for your questions. We have a fine panel today of not just uh, technology experts and virtual production, but also we have some of our educators with us today. Later on, we're, oh, we will be switching to our topic about the One Learning community. But in the meantime, any general edu edu education questions that tend to sometimes leak into our, our second hour discussion, we like to, to handle those uh, for the first hour. So feel free to, uh, to um, leverage our panel. Uh, let's go to our next question. Simon Ray in Midlands in the UK says, can the panel suggest a hardware setup to get the best bandwidth from multiple 4G connections with different carriers? No 5G or landline is available here. And while I usually get reasonable bandwidth at peak times, it drops below an acceptable level. Okay. Yeah, I guess it depends on if you're using it for uh, just data or if you're using it to stream video because there are ways of bonding, but there's hardware ways. I would be taking a look at um, what Tucker and the guys are using, which is uh, from Peplink. It's called Speed Fusion. So you can, it's hardware. So you put in your multiple modems and you know, Keenan makes it easy. You just, you just get the service and it's all done and you log into your account. With Speed Fusion, there's going to be a lot more setup depending on which package you go with. But that's one way of, uh, of getting, because you can see each carrier so you see what what uh t-mobile's given you what and so it'll shift for you on the fly so that's the that's the the way that i'd be looking at it if, if you are streaming video again like i said earlier hevc h.265 hardware encoders can split that bandwidth in half giving you a perfect signal whereas you might have fallen apart and this is where other, other technologies uh resi some if the stream doesn't need to be um real-time, real-time, like, it, I mean, really low latency, uh, you can get away with using something like Resi to, to basically buffer, increase the buffer, and that, that way you can uh, get out of some of those uh, retransmissions that would cause uh, a hit uh, or degradation. So I'd be looking at those as options. Um, 
one more thing is antennas. Uh, it, if you can get some uh, antennas that go externally that can maybe push towards a window or somewhere where uh, you get a little bit better reception. And then Starlink. I mean, if if all else fails, I mean, like I was saying, I spend four four hundred bucks for one one day with this thing. You could that's Starlink for a couple months, and that's unlimited. So I'd be looking at Starlink option as well. I wonder um, as those that constellation starts to get. Uh, filled out those vertical accesses for Starlink are looking quite interesting. I do wonder how they're able to manage the cell sizes. I guess we'll get a little bit smaller too, you know, in more more urban areas. But yeah, that's a that's a fantastic suggestion. Jeffrey. And I'm looking at your question and I'm seeing that you've got you've got some well you've only got 4G instead of 5G, which is really making me wonder what type of towers you have, where your towers are located. And how many people per tower are being are using the 4G connection right now? There, if you've got a very spread out tower system, and, or you're next to a shoreline or something like that, then uh, then having multiple 4G connections might not be an answer simply because of the fact that there's nothing to connect to. So uh, I would I would check to see. Well, I'm I'm not sure how many. How many carriers are in the UK? I know of two, um, but uh, yeah, it's it. If you don't have those towers to connect to, then it's not going to be much of a help. And then, yeah, Starlink would be the best option at that point. Next question, uh, John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada, asked this one here on the panel. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, said we will be adding generative text to image to two products and our uh, language learning system or large, what is that? Uh, large language models, thanks. Uh, to Gmail and Docs. And he notes the arms race is about to begin. What are your thoughts? Google had, Google had their, uh, their earnings report this week and Sundar, this is just two days ago. Um, they own DeepMind, which is probably the, the, the best AI researchers on the planet in Google. And they're, they're they're going to be coming on strong here over the month, so they're going to add in AI into into Gmail and to Google Docs, and Microsoft now has has said that they're going to integrate it into Office three sixty five and Bing, and then you're going to see some hybrids on the search engine, so they'll have AI built into the search engine along with search, because the AIs are pre trained and they can't do anything, you know, later than twenty twenty one, Open AI's product Chat GPT. Um, so it's going to be super interesting what's coming down the pipeline. And then Salesforce and Oracle and Apple and all of them have AI. You're going to see a, a huge arm race this year. John? Yeah, I was uh, advertised the first AI product in my email yesterday. It's something called AI Buddy. For $17, you can have a different interface to uh, ChatGPT, it looks like. And there's a bunch of upsells to make it go faster. Um definitely felt pretty scammy but i think what we're going to see is a lot of people trying to get on a gold rush and it depends really how important network effects are in the ai world because if it's the kind of thing where having more inquiries enables one company to do better uh, it might be like search where once google got a little bit of a foothold um, their product was always just consistently better than everyone else because they had more data feeding into it and i think that's what microsoft might be a little bit worried about and why they're pushing so hard to get ChatGPT into their products, including uh, their advertising ChatGPT included in Teams to do transcripts of meetings and uh, notes and that sort of thing for the Teams Pro account. So I think 
we're just seeing the start of it. And it'll be interesting to see as these companies who are much better and more established um, with larger infrastructures like the Googles and Apples and Amazons possibly, what happens in the space then? It's interesting you say that, John. I had a similar scan where there were a couple of people that were imitating bots. Go ahead, Dave. Imitating bots. Now, that's an interesting idea. Um, Quora, the platform for asking questions and uh, getting answers from real people, uh, has now got a bot where you can ask your questions of the bot. And it also, of course, engages. It's an open AI, um, I guess, platform. And uh, it uh, allows you to have a conversation so that you can ask a question and have follow-up questions. And that interface actually offers a, a list of possible follow-up questions it's prepared to answer. And I thought that was an interesting addition to the interface. And maybe that's the sort of thing we'll see in search, is you search for one thing and then you get options for searching further or deeper or wider. And then you can drag your search in to exactly what you want and lose some of that frustration that happens with Google sometimes where you're asking for one thing and it's giving you something else or the Siri experience where it says, I can't find that. So I, I think, yes, there's an arms race going to be happening, not so much a, you know, a conflict resulting in the devastation of everybody, although John might disagree with me. Um, the thing is, for embedding these things means you're going to have access to more that allows you to sort of brainstorm with it. And if you're doing work uh, on a dock or whatever and you need to stop and do some brainstorming, it'll have a facility to do that. I just fear that it's going to become the lorem ipsum of uh, document making in that instead of some sort of Greek text to fill the columns, you're going to have somebody's queries uh, filling in the columns and then just rewriting the story according to what that produced. Got Keely? I think the biggest race that we're actually going to see is not on the product side, but on the user side, because there are, I think, many people who are sitting back and looking at these AI-infused products or AI in general and thinking, I, I can wait. I can wait this one out and I can just sort of see how it shakes. But there are very important skills that you have to start developing in order to understand and utilize AI in a productive way so it isn't lorem ipsum type answers. And I think that we're all as a community underestimating how much actual work and expertise that's going to take. And so the race is actually amongst the people who are using the AI in figuring out how to best utilize it and get the results that they're actually looking for. Go ahead, Bill. Having done a little bit of copy editing in my time and my history, I'm wondering if this is going to make it really hard to do that because you're going to have so many auto-generated things that are close, but not quite. And so if Lorem Ipsum's in a graph or something like that, it's really easy to know. I have to go back and redo that right. Uh, these chat GPT things look like they were written by someone who knew what they were doing. And so I think that's going to lull some people into a false sense of security. Also, I'm really worried about the fact that at some point I might get sued uh, for identity theft by a bot. I don't want to think about that. Dave? There is, in fact, a warning label coming with some of these that you have to be careful it's not always correct. And I think that shouldn't be at the bottom of the page. I think it should be at the top of the page, above your, you know, buy now or use the uh, the feature. 
that the feature should come with a dialog box that says what this generates will not always be correct. And as John Preto pointed out, it'll only date back to 2021. Although I think there'll be a chance for it to advance year by year as it gets more popular. It's interesting to me. I recall as the internet became more popular, um, originally the hardest part was just finding information. If you found information, it was so much friction for people to put information on the web that typically there was you know, really no nefarious purposes and people went through the effort to put the information on the internet and you, and you actually found it or knew where to look. You know, you, you could fairly trust that the person was at least trying to, to put out accurate information. Uh, and then whenever search became ubiquitous, it was just you were flooded in a sea of information and you had to try and curate, you know, what, what was, what was the uh, information to have. So it seems like for the AI race, that this is sort of the, the same thing that we're having now. We have um, all of this information, all this access to information that sounds uh, plausible and uh, it's more important than ever. It seems to, um, to be able to use our rational judgment to do or be our own uh, fact checkers and, and, uh, really be discriminative about what we see and hear. Uh, what's the adage about how much you hear, and how much you see, and how much you believe? Let's go to our next question. James Babbitt in San Diego is up next. Excellent interview with Michael Krasny and Brian Copeland on Gray Matter. How would you make a video, the video, with them looking directly at each other and have the attendees also looking directly at them? Guy? Yeah, this happened to me yesterday. We were doing a shoot and the uh, person was just going to be interviewed. And as as the person doing the interview walked in, she said, I'm going to stand right here and you're going to uh, look into the camera and you're going to uh, answer these questions. And so th this is the room that they were in. So she was by the door over there and the gentleman presenting was standing at that desk. There's a prompter, there's a teleprompter right up here. And I was like, no, we need to get you out of the room into the next room over and we're going to put you on Zoom into that. Into that. And the difference was just out, outstanding. Um, a, a similar kit from ICANN, like this one right here, uh, shows what I'm talking about. It is not cheap. This is a $4,000 solution right here, two prompters. They, again, they call it Interatron. So this is how you can put the camera into the prompter and have two people looking at each other. And it makes that icon, like I'm looking at you through a prompter to... Um, it's just straight down the barrel. You know, you're, you're looking right down. If you position the person, uh, like if I drag my gallery right here, that now I can see my lens is like right behind that head. And so it's amazing when you get these prompters and you can do Interatron. So I looked at the stuff from the Michael Krasny um, session and yeah, it's kind of traditional. They're just looking at each other and they're both in the room. And so if, if you're shooting it traditionally, like you would for a TV interview, then that's the look you're going to get. But if you want the modern day, um, this is, since we've been on Zoom so much with each other, it, it, everybody's used to just that look of looking right into the camera. So I think we're going to see Interatron happen more and more. Thank you. Guy, go ahead, Dave. The original interview format was to make the viewer think they were sitting in the room with the two people speaking. And they wouldn't be speaking directly to you. You'd just be overhearing what's going on. So the angles of the cameras, people looking slightly off in both directions, meant that you were in the theater with them. Whereas with Zoom and all those kind of face-to-face -face things, uh, we're getting a more specific 
contact rather than just, we're not overhearing each other in this meeting. Uh, we're talking to each other. And the audience, we don't have an audience. We have other people participating, but not sitting to our right watching us have a conversation. So that that's a big change. That's something culturally that we're just adjusting to. And some other uh, applications may be beneficial, such as presentations, as Alex is always talking about, and also this kind of conversation with uh, Michael. Yeah, it sounds like, um, and you know, we don't have our uh, teleprompter expert, uh, Courtney Gooden, with us uh, today, but um, you know, um, it's one of those things where um, sometimes you can have an operator that controls what the participant sees as far as uh, an actual, instead of the interrogon, the actual the original purpose of the teleprompter where you're actually prompting people and keeping that cue right about the center of the screen where the lens is, uh, is key to having that eye contact with the person. But um, Guy brings up an interesting point as far as feeds, you know, and maybe instead of cue or maybe in addition to uh, copy and cue, having a production role where you're actually showing person a person the relevant information, whether it's the person they're talking to or moving people in so that they're not, they're not um, tempted to look aside. Um, I'm using a, a teleprompter right here and um, um, cheaper options can be made if you're a, a little creative and willing to use. I have a 16 inch uh, teleprompter as well, which is helpful to be able to get a large view so I can see the entire gallery and not have to, to shift my gaze. Although I will say that um, I have the bare minimum, I would say, um, brightness level that's recommended for indoors, it's about 400 nits. That's about the, the bare minimum that you'd want for indoor um, on that. And so if I have a brighter uh, view to my side or larger, which I do, <laughs> it is tempting to to look over there or to break focus. So the important thing is to have the the um, you know the incentive to bring that right back to the camera. And I wonder that's something that some people do their own teleprompting. They'll lead themselves uh, you know with their own software or sometimes there's some AI that can track what you're saying on a script and, and mm -hmm. feed things with you. Mm -hmm. um, but also someone that's, uh, that's talented, like a teleprompter operator, maybe a, you know, a new producer role that would shift in the appropriate, you know, uh, information or uh, background for that. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I just pulled up the footage from yesterday, just popped open the, uh, the gallery view. And uh, you do got to be careful of having people on each side because the gentleman on the right is in the one button studio. The gentleman, the, uh, the director on the left is, uh, in just our conference room and she's on my iPad using, you know, just, just the built-in camera. So the built-in camera on there is really off to the, off to the side. And so, um, it, it, it's just this thing you need to, because otherwise the person looking is now looking to the side a little bit because they, they don't know if they're being paid attention to. So you really need one at each side. So with a iPad, you could even do this. So if those ICANN ones are too expensive uh, and you want to get this done, uh, maybe look at an iPad solution where it's peer-to-peer uh, -peer that way. Uh, you could use some kind of app, uh, even Zoom, to uh, put, put the person on the screen and then put the camera behind on, uh, I think I've seen them on Amazon for like 400 bucks. So that may be another way to do this for cheaper. Yeah, very good. So sometimes we'll have uh, Tally uh, have the benefit of that here on our show, which is fantastic when we do. Uh, go ahead, Dave. 
Well, I'm thinking the kind of um, continue continuity that Apple's offering, where you can mount your phone on a monitor and an iMac monitor or something, and uh, you get a more direct view instead of looking off to the side in the iPad and uh, checking other things on your screen. You've got the camera actually dropping in front of your stuff. Um, I also think we're getting used to people who are in a conversation or in a meeting and they are looking off camera to other screens. This is becoming more and more common. Uh, people who, of course, are looking, you know, you're looking up their nose as they're talking on a, a laptop or something is going to slowly go away because it's uncomplimentary to the people who are, you know, doing it that way. But also, it's just the uh, the information we need to have at our fingertips, uh, which can't always be transcribed immediately to a teleprompter. So positioning and uh, learning to look and pay attention and have, you know, as we have here, some screens that are off to the side that have confirmation images to say that I'm I'm now part of a group shot. Uh, it's it's just part of the tricks and skills you have to develop when we're in this new world of everyone talking addressing you directly rather than you observing a conversation. Go ahead, Bill. That continuity camera, the Apple's thing, really surprised me when it first came out. It still kind of shocks me to the fact that you can mount your phone where the laptop's camera would traditionally be mounted above that and get two shots out of that, both the straight-on image of the person speaking and also one that is derived from it that points down so you can show people like a, almost a document camera. It just seems like they've been putting some serious research into that. I, if I didn't have the rig that I have now, I would definitely explore it. I may do it actually for a mobile rig to be able to take out and do presentations. It looks really interesting. Go ahead, Kai. Yeah, the other uh, part of it is uh, being able to swap back and forth. So you're, you're seeing right here that I, I have uh, gallery view right now, but I can also push on my stream deck. I can push a button here and I can cut back to the other the other view. So this is another handy feature of using a prompter is where, where are you looking? This is why I was saying I can drag people around. Uh, so in that other session, uh, she was looking off to the side because it was a two up, you know, the, the other person. So it's important in the prompter where you put that, that image so that they're looking again down, down the barrel versus kind of off to the side. So it's, it's an interesting field to get into because I, I never thought that we'd like, I bought this prompter 12 years ago. I never would have thought that I'd be putting video in it. I mean, we bought it to read text off of, so it's just a whole new world that we're, we're getting into. And then there's brightness issues too. Like some of these are high bright, so it depends on if you're going to be lugging this onto a set. Is it going to be outside? Are you going to be in the shadows? Are you able to get out of the sunlight? Do you need an extra hood? There's all kinds of other issues that start to crop into this. Yeah. It's really interesting that we've adapted something that was made for reading news or yeah. reading text or doing a on-camera presentation like a commercial. And then we're adapting it with video now to make it part of an exchange. It's, it's really a, an adaptation here. Yeah, I'm thinking about too that that what you put on the screen um, might be some considerations to have some automation or maybe even AI to where when you're when you're focused when the producers are focusing on certain parts, you know, whether you're looking at a gallery or just a single person, if it changes the view that the participants have or which participant has, that might be an interesting or even uh, shared thing to think about. If you're going to be sharing screens or slide sets or whatever, you could cue the prompter to show it to you and you're still talking to the crew and not looking at a camera off. 
Yeah, there's different um, triggers and innovations you can use in vMix, for example, where you can uh, affect different outputs, or even just having a, another, um, what do you call that, like an ME uh, that would just affect uh, the participants might be interesting, or just another job uh, for you know a skilled producer to be able to keep keep track of that and sort of guide their their talent along. I will say with the uh, continuity camera, um, I'm not super thrilled as far as the eye contact in that regard because you're going from um, arg arguably not the best camera even at 1080p and the bezel, which is just out of the sight, uh, you know, of where people are going to be looking for the the view. They're going to be looking at faces, and then the, the camera is just above it. But your the continuity camera is is even larger still, separated from it. And what I'll typically do is um, coach our participants that to hit on their major points and then purposely look at the camera for for their delivery. But I think what what I would do since Apple has made the continuity camera the separate camera more ubiquitous over your continuity camera to stick that thing inside of a teleprompter. Uh, and that way you, you could have something that would be a lower barrier of entry of having the, the nice camera inside of continuity camera, but something where they could actually look at their drawn to their participants inside of it, as opposed to outside the frame of where they're, where they're tending to look. Um, other than that, you need skill. Uh, you need to, you need to train the wetware uh, for, for people to, to make that eye contact. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, another trick, uh, there was a gentleman that uh, makes PTZ cameras. And so I was in a Zoom session with him. This is early in the pandemic. He's from Video360. And that company, uh, they've been doing this for so long. And he, his eye contact was dead on. And I was like, how are you doing that? You got a prompter? And he's like, no. And he showed me behind the scenes. And he just took his laptop and, and moved another monitor. He lined it up perfectly, like where his other monitor behind him, uh, behind his webcam was right behind. So there's ways to fake this if you just want to practice and see if you can get the visual. Uh, but yeah, it was stunning how he, because I was in meetings with him all the time and I kept going, man, he's using a prompter. And it's like, now I know his trick. It's, it's, not, it's not a prompter. It's just a monitor right behind, but you got to line it up. So that's the trick is you got to line it up perfectly because you don't want it too far away because then the, the gaze is shifting. You want it just, just at the right spot. So play with it and if you got an extra monitor laying around, it's a cheap solution. I think I'm they used to have. Um, to, uh, oh, go ahead, Josh. Oh, no, I was just going to say for the sound, they used to have things where the center speaker cone used to be right behind the projector of a screen. So they'd have it and put the thing in there. I think you could just cut out a little thing and put the, put the camera in there. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, that was the psychological trick to see that the sound was coming out of the film rather than around the film. Um, I'm actually very curious to find out if this connectivity or continuity thing that Apple's offering, what's going to be on the screen of the phone when you put it in there? Could you have kind of teleprompter content that's right there at the camera? And so you are getting some, and then you could switch in as, as Guy has been showing, other images there for you to stare at. And the parallax between the camera off to the edge and the uh, uh, content you're staring at would be so narrow as to almost fake the direct contact look. Uh, I'm also encouraged by the announcement that the camera is going now to the what would be the side bevel on a vertical uh, iPad instead of being at the top of a vertical iPad. They're accept accepting that this standard uh, wider than tall image is the way people are going to be doing many of their calls. And if the camera is 
in the middle of the top, it's less of a distraction than them looking off to the camera and uh, not uh, looking at the screen rather than the camera. Oh, one one note yeah. on that, Vic, with continuity camera, you, you can't use the front camera. You have to flip it around. So oh, that's the way okay. it works is it uses the right. three. Yeah. So, so it'll be the back camera to get the, the wide angle view for the down look. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Well, we had a nice uh, chat about that. Thank you, producers, for providing. We do have some more questions, though. But I do think this is an interesting topic for really bridging the gap between what people expect at a physical event, where you typically look at people's eyes when you're speaking, uh, and coming up with a with a digital solution. So very interesting on that front. Let's go to our next question. It comes from Douglas Carmichael, and he says, I'm looking at my first ATEM to add to my system. Would the Mini Pro ISO be a solid start for an audio and or music person? Or should I go with the extreme ISO? And he notes here also the sources would be a huddle cam and the HDMI output from my Mac, leaving two open inputs. All right, John and Jesse are going to weigh in on this. Yeah, I would ask yourself a few questions. Uh, first, do you need to record each separate input separately? If not, you might not need the ISO and you can save a little bit of money there. Secondly, do you need to be able to use the webcam features while you're recording? Because the uh, Pro version only has one USB port and it can do one or the other, not both at the same time. Uh, if those two questions are no and yes, respectively, I think it was, uh, you might just need just the regular Pro. Go ahead, Jesse. I'm going to go the complete opposite direction and say that the tools you have will um, will direct how you uh, create your workflow. When we switched over to the ISO, we did not realize how much it would change every aspect of production across the board. So at this point, I would say the ISO is all but uh, mandatory, just just because of it, it's a ground up rethinking of how we produce every video we produce. And I would seriously consider the extreme there. You know, it's, it's a bit overpowered. There are some buttons on there that weren't even buttons when it came out because there were too many buttons for them to do something with all the buttons. Uh, but you've, you've also got a headphone out on the extreme that you don't have on the mini and we find ourselves using that a lot also if you only have four channels you're going to cap out really quickly four channels is three cameras and um and a graphics feed and you're already at capacity with just that i know your your setup is a little bit smaller than what i just described but like i said um the tools you have will govern the workflow you create and having that extra wiggle room uh, will create workflows that use that extra wiggle room. There you go, Douglas. We've got both sides covered for you. Let's go to our next question. Uh, Jesse Kester, who is just speaking in Glendale, says, we're looking for more range on our ATEM Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera pairing, capping at 50 feet of HDMI now. What's the next step? Wireless transmitters, decimators, and H uh, SDI? I can't afford an array of URSAs and a Constellation, so what are the options? And uh, Jesse, I wonder if if you I don't know if you've already uh, utilized the resource, but sometimes having the remote control of the the ATEM itself and putting that closer to where the cameras is can get you a little bit of range. That might help you out a little bit if you haven't been able to to utilize that. We're getting into bigger and bigger venues where the cameras are getting farther apart from each other and from the ATEM. So there's increasingly uh, not one sweet spot where we can do that. Yeah, and I believe as far as the bi-directionality, I'm assuming you're going to want to shade those too with it too, so that might limit your options. 
You know, in, in stark contradiction to what I just said about uh, tool sets defining your pipeline, we don't do any shading from the ATEM to the camera, but we do like that conversation, the one button record on all cameras and the ATEM. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, there's some, some thoughts for you. Um, maybe we'll, uh, we'll put it into another <laughs> discussion and get that out there for our community. Let's go to our next question. Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio. Has anyone ever used a smart whiteboard? And if so, your thoughts and a recommended model. Go ahead, Aaron. I absolutely love the Promethean board that my district just picked up recently. Um, short story, actually, it was funny that the at the end of last year, my principal said, do you want to try out this brand new technology? And I said, I really want to fix what I have here so that more teachers can have access and she said, but I still want you to try it. So I tried it and now I'm like, oh my goodness. I'm so glad that all the teachers in my district have this now because it is absolutely amazing. We have the Promethium um, Titanium. I don't remember the exact number. I was trying to look it up on the side here, but I think it's absolutely phenomenal because you're able to hook up your computer to it. You can screen share to it. Um, beautiful graphics and video on the screen. The kids can interact with it. And I think it's great, not just for the younger kids, but for the older kids as well, or even adults. So they could go up and really interact with whatever media that you're using. And what type of um, hardware is that exactly, Aaron? I'm not familiar with the Promethean board. So if you ask my students, it's a very large TV on wheels. Um, but Overall, it's a, I'm seeing it up on guy's screen too. Yeah, that's, I think that's the exact one that we have. Um, it's a huge interactive display and it comes with some extra tools, but for the most part, all you need is a USB-C cord and everything is touch and interactive and absolutely fantastic to use in pretty much any setting, whether it's school or the workforce. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I spent uh, a few years traveling the province of Alberta teaching people how to use smart boards. Um, and they were called, there was a trademark, smart board. And um, overcoming the initial difficulties of, of actually driving the board from a laptop or a dedicated PC and the latency of the pens where you draw something and it takes a second to come in and that disturbs person's flow of thought. But the improvements and the speed, of course, of CPUs now is such that this is almost invisible. Uh, the whiteboard is actually quite capable of capturing text. You can handwrite something and then convert it to text. You can uh, draw things and then make them perfect circles and triangles and that sort of stuff. There are lots of sort of menu pauses where you press the pencil against the screen and then a drop-down menu appears just like a mouse would. And I often taught people that the USB connection to the smart board is really just you've moved the mouse onto a board. And once you get past, the, you know, you put that model in your head as you're using the board as your mouse, you can actually drive the laptop with, with the pens and with your fingers on the board. So it isn't a simpler way of doing things, but it's a more sort of get out of your way approach to doing things. Uh, the other thing is for whiteboard brainstorming, people can come up with the different colored fake pens and draw their remarks or put in their bits. And then you're able to capture the whole screen instead of having to stop and take a picture of it. Uh, and then you can share things to people immediately through text or web or uh, even just emailing the pages to people as they're in the room with their own laptops. 
uh, a gathering or a brainstorming session or even a consultation can be done where shared documents are shown and then they're shared directly to people in their laptops. Uh, I found it a little confounding at first, but as things developed better and more CPU cycles were applied to it, it didn't overheat the laptops, it didn't disconnect from USB, and uh, people were getting more and more comfortable with it over the years. I I used a model called Smart Boards, and I think they're similar to what even what Microsoft was trying to do with smart TVs and smart monitors, uh, although those were impossibly expensive. Uh, I even used the model that Aaron uh, is talking about, but it sounds to me like it's it's a similar thing, except it's more like a TV. Next question. Comes to us from Joaquin Matus in uh, Imperial Valley, California. And the question is, what is squeeze on an audio limiter? Jeffrey? Let's see if I can attack this. So basically, in when you limit something, you're, you're setting it so it doesn't uh, peak out and uh, cause any type of clipping. So you set your limiter. And then what you do is you set your squeeze, and what it'll do is it'll squeeze the audio down a little bit so the loudness, you can push up the loudness a little bit more. The end result is an, uh, a, a bunch of tones that'll, that'll sound a lot louder than, the, than they normally did. And uh, if you're talking with the Behringer, I think that it goes from like uh, 0 to 100% in 2% increments uh, with, with the squeeze. So if you just need to make, you know, like a... Uh, metal show or something like that and you want to make it sound a lot louder that's where you'd use the squeeze next question craig mcfarland in boston massachusetts i'm looking for transcript tools the case is 100 plus hours of interviews that we'd like to pull okay quality transcripts for searching topics preferably something that's inexpensive or free john hey craig um i put a link in the chat i probably put it in the right event chat and um open ai has a product called whisper that is absolutely stunning when it comes to transcript you just feed it the i i presume you have audio files or video files you just drag it it's command line um and it, the accuracy is spectacular look at that video from felipe and if you need help felipe i'm sure will help you out and it's completely free next question John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. There was a conversation on Discord this week about homework. What does the panel think of homework's utility in education? Go ahead, Dr. Clark. Well, as a parent and grandparent, I don't have anything good to say about homework. Uh, in the Catholic uh, tradition, there's a, a concept called an occasion of sin which means that if you go there, you're likely to fall short. And I think that's true of a lot of dining room table homework sessions that um, provide dilemmas for parents and, and students, kids, um, with regard to how hard to press and how, how much to help or how little to help or how to add or subtract incentives uh, for completing what are often uh, relatively meaningless uh, exercises. So I'm not a big fan of homework. Jesse? 
I feel like the three um, the three main skills that allowed me to sustain a career in my adulthood were lateral thinking, um, uh, team team building, and you know teamwork and um, uh, creative problem solving, and any bit of homework that our child has that relates to those three skill sets will be uh, warmly welcomed and encouraged. But I, th- I think any homework or class assignment that is uh, obviously built around, um, you know, uh, testing score mandates from the school board uh, is is just going to be barely respected in our house. We're, we're gearing up for, for school here. And we have these conversations very often, and it's it's difficult for me to imagine uh, pouring, forcing my child to pour his heart and soul into something that is heartless and soulless. Aaron, I'm going to start off my answer here by reading from Discord from Alex Lindsay. I believe all homework should just be video, audio, reading to be to be ready for class discussion. And homework that includes doing something should literally be against the law. Totally support that. That's what I do in my classroom. I give them a couple of videos and a quick like five minute game to play that they're obsessed with playing. And then that's it. That's all we do. And then it preps them for the next day. And they've loved it. They are ready for the next day. They are prepared and they can watch the videos in the car on the way to some of their activities so they're not bogged down by paperwork and busy work. Go ahead, John. I never thought I'd be the homework defender in this group. Um, I feel like well-written homework can help aid in retention because it epitomizes spaced repetition and interleaving. Now, not every student benefits from it, but for example, my children need homework or else they can't retain the information. And if we didn't have homework, I would just go through the exercises with them anyways. But every day my son comes home with an F on his math quiz, we practice those questions because they're skills he needs to learn. And so I think part of it is homework should never exist for its own sake. And like the school told us, we're going to ramp up the homework this year because you have more next year. It's like, why do we have to have more next year? Um, But I think for some students, it can be a helpful tool to help them learn. Got Kaylee? I think the one thing that I've put together over the last few decades, including having a stint through law school and now being really an adult educator, is that there is no learning without doing. But what homework is, is like a faux doing. It it doesn't actually create anything. And as somebody in the content creation community, what I've discovered is that in order to learn a concept, it's essential to create something with it. So the term homework can mean a lot of things if it means something that is a creative act that allows a uh, an elevated form of synthesis that actually builds something new with that knowledge that's been learned. Fantastic. If it doesn't do those things, sucks. Jesse? Uh, the lateral thinking point is is no accident on that, and I'd like to just expand a little bit. Um, it, it's easy when you're in high school to say, "Why am I doing history? I want to be a I want to be a mathematician," or "Why am I doing math? I want to be a filmmaker." That's the lateral thinking. Um, all those all those courses are so valuable, and the the homework that pulls you outside of the classes and homework that pull you outside of what you'd be thinking about naturally are strengthening those lateral thinking muscles. Excellent. Uh, fantastic discussion. And 
just a reminder, we have our educators available. So education topics are on, are on the agenda. Let's go to our next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway is up next. What is a simple, affordable, and reliable way to record a Mac screen with system audio and mic input, preferably something that can be controlled with companion? John? Uh, my preferred solution is an app called Capto. It's part of Setup. It costs about $20 on its own, but I think it's the best features for the cost in the market. Good guy. Yeah, Telestream has ScreenFlow that's uh, pretty much a standard on the Mac side. Uh, Hardware-wise, I'd probably be looking at an ATEM ISO if you just want to uh, have an option that you can record directly. And that's not a cheap option, but it gives you flexibility if you want to add multiple angles later. Uh, the way I would do it, though, personally, is NDI, and I would use a second computer. So you hit uh, screen NDI screen capture, so you download N NDI tools on uh, the NDI Tools website, and then on a second computer, Mac or PC, you pick it up. So in, in uh, OBS, you can just uh, see that screen, and then you can set up a companion uh, record button, and that's how I would do it, or, or I would do it with Wirecast or Mimo Live. I've done both uh, buttons to record on those uh, apps as well. Go ahead, Jeffrey. I stole my answer. Yeah, uh, uh, NDI is what I would use. It's absolutely free. Uh, OBS and Wirecast. Uh, OBS is also free. Uh, Wirecast and, and Ecamm, all those others you do have to pay for. Kaylee? Jeffrey stole my Ecamm now, and he's absolutely right. You would have to pay for it. But if it is a product that you're already using in order to produce your live streams or your produced video, then it is a great solution. But I absolutely echo John's recommendation of Capto. It is a fantastic app and great bang for the buck. Bill, who stole your answer? Nobody, but if you uh, hadn't said mic input, I would have immediately said QuickTime Pro will do a great screen grab with system audio. You could, if you happen to have loopback installed, uh, route your external mic in and get both at the same time. That's going to be a little bit of a one-time expense to, to license loopback, but that's the only thing you need to do it if you want to do it right on your machine. Next question. Next question comes from Jesse Kester in Glendale, uh, Glendale. I don't know if it's California or Arizona, but it's Glendale. Wistfully dreaming of purchasing our first global shuttle, shutter camera. What's the closest thing to an entry-level product in, the, in that class? Um, let's see, global shutter. Wasn't there a Panasonic camera that had, I don't know if it's global camera, but they were able to give you the full Resolution. I know a lot of folks like that for that did sixteen nine or nine sixteen work. Sorry, I don't have the uh, the name of that one, but it's one of their more recent uh, full frame cameras, I believe. Let's go to our next question. Roz McNulty in Vancouver, Canada. Why are my times wrong in files on my files when saving? Both Word, ScreenFlow, and even Photoshop. They're off by. Uh, Looks like one hour and 13 minutes, perhaps, or more. Uh, not even a time zone aware. That might be 1.13 minutes. Obviously, I have checked my settings and turned off and on auto Apple time. Go ahead, Dave. Okay, I'll make a stab at this one. But there are two things that came to my mind when I read this. Uh, the first was, I don't know how old your Mac is. So... If we don't know what what model it is or what system you're using, it, it can have an effect on how you set this up. 
Uh, the other thing is that if you're using local time on your machine and not using a outside clock, uh, like an atomic clock at some location, uh, then there's no synchronization on the internet with you. So your documents may in fact be uh, an hour and 13 minutes separate from what an atomic clock is doing because the clock on your your uh, screen is uh, not the same as what the outside world is, is using. The second thing I would look at is, and this is a service call, so you, you might take the thing in and have a, a genius look at it to see if, if any kind of battery problem or... Uh, um, capacitor problem in the motherboard is causing the clock to run separately from the rest of your your system. So um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't think that something like Word or uh, Photoshop um, are clocking separately from your your desktop. It's your desktop providing that clock to Photoshop. So I would look through that process back toward whether I'm syncing on the internet or whether I've separated from the internet. And if it only happens when you're not on the internet, then that could be something about your machine that's clocking wrong. And that would be a, a, a genius visit to see if they can uh, do a hardware fix or a, um, a replacement. Yeah, as I'm, I'm looking at that, a plus one, everything that Dave said, it might be uh, the perspective from what you're checking it from. Maybe send something to a different person and ask them if they're getting the same results that you are. Otherwise, just what Dave said, I agree. Let's go to our next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. And the question is, one of the essential services that states allowed during the pandemic was services for people with disabilities, including the folks on the autism spectrum. Could some of the tech and or tools we use in office hours help create safe virtual environments for that population? Aaron? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the, the great audio and visual techniques that have been taught on here can provide a can, can provide stability and continuity for people because if your connection is going in and out and your audio or your visual isn't super strong, some people are going to have more anxiety that's created because they can't access what they need. Um, also thinking just about the concept of the medical telehealth calls that may or may not be going away starting in May. Um, it all comes back to the concept of People, some people have anxieties. They don't want to leave the house. It's easier to talk to your doctor when you're at a, in a comfortable, safe setting. Thinking about social groups online. If you're an anxious person or if you're someone that just even is living in a cold climate and you just don't really want to leave your house, it's that safety that you have of being in your own home, having your gear. And it's something that makes you feel good because if you have your strong visual with your camera and your lights, you're going to look good and then you're going to feel good. And that can be amplified to many, many people. Next question. James Babbitt back from San Diego right again. In Discord, I have office hours, gray matters, mid-journey, twit, and so forth. Could the panelists give some tips for getting the most out of Discord? You ever use Discord, Keely? Uh, I've heard of it. I, I don't really know. Uh, I would suggest several things, but I don't want to steal anybody else's thunder who's going to contribute a, a little bit. One of the things that I would recommend in general is that you think of it like a party. So if you go to a party and you stand in a corner and you listen to conversations and you don't really engage, you're probably not going to have as much fun as if you walk up to somebody and just ask them a question. 
you don't have to feel like you need to be the smartest, most interesting, best looking person in the room. You simply have to engage and be willing to talk to people. So in every server I go into, I'll I'll hear feedback privately from people. Oh, I've been in this server for three years. And I ask how many, how many questions have you posted? How many times have you engaged with people? Oh no, I just read. And I think what a waste because you're missing out on being an active participant in shaping the conversations and the knowledge that's built in that particular discord. So that's sort of the general theme that I would go with and I'll see what everybody else has to say. I can't wait. Rediscover the discord you're in. Fantastic. Go Jesse. Why rediscover the discord you're in when you can build a discord of your own? I would really suggest uh, starting your own server, starting it small and getting acquainted with the tools one at a time. When you jump into something like office hours with, you know, hundreds of channels all being updated daily, it, it can be a little overwhelming and uh, sometimes intimidating when you get into something like mid journey with, you know, a dozen servers and millions of updates a day. It can be um, mind bending. Start your own server, invite a couple people over, start noodling around with the tools. That's exactly what we're doing. And it is so much fun. So, a lot of social media was built as this feed and discord feels like it was built more as a conversation. And it's uh, it's a much more comfortable and fun environment than than other social media platforms that I've been on. Jeffrey? Jesse stole my answer. Switch to Slack. No, uh, actually, uh, uh, creating a sandbox. The, uh, I, I'm going to um, twist it in a little bit different way. Create a Discord server as your personal sandbox for different things. Like, for instance, you said MidJourney. If you go to MidJourney, you're just running down the list of all these uh, all these people that are are using MidJourney, and there are all these pictures. And then when you do your own MidJourney, you're you're, you're stuck because you're trying to find your images. Well you can invite the mid-journey bot over to your discord and that will allow you to uh to to find your photos find your images you don't need to boost everything and i also want to uh mention that it's not a security thing it's not going to make things more secure for you because discord's not that secure of a platform uh as like a slack would be but uh, keep that in mind when you are using it. But you can definitely kind of catalog everything and create that in your own little sandbox. And that, that's a great way for you to uh, keep an organization of things. Keely, you're not going to steal anything now. Go ahead. Right. Okay. One technique that I would recommend for people who are getting into Discord and are thinking, oh my gosh, there's so much here. I'm overwhelmed. All those sort of things is to go through a server and just check out the categories and channels. And if there are things that you know that you're absolutely not going to be interested in, right click on that channel or even the entire category and mute it. And then you can go to the top of the server panel, click on the server and hide those muted channels. Now, remember that if you do that, that is going to absolutely remove those channels from your view entirely. So if one day you think, oh, I really do want to engage in that off-topic conversation, it's not going to be there for you. And you might just forget that it even exists. But that can really help with the sort of overwhelm of having too many things coming at you and can really help you hone in your focus on the things that are going to be most useful for you. So I recommend that technique for a lot of people who are struggling with the volume that you might find in some servers. All right. Well, thank you, all of our producers. We're 
happy to help you um, work with all of your tools, uh, either technological or um, our methods. Uh, we're going to switch gears just slightly uh, to our education topic with Dave. Uh, Dave, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to look at a service called One Learning Community, which offers resource management, community supports, communication management, and professional development to education agencies and organizations. So, thanks for joining us at Education Hour. We're uh, happy to see you, and we're uh, really um, going to look at a thing that was suggested to us in one of the brainstorming uh, sessions uh, that we have occasionally with our producers and, and ask people to suggest things to us uh, that they would like us to cover. So this is one thing that was brought up some time ago. Uh, we've done a little looking into it, and, and I'm going to present a little bit about it today, and then we'll have a discussion about it or any other services that are there. I'll start by saying that um, I'm not familiar with how state and local educational institutions make their uh, platform decisions and support material decisions. I don't know how they organize their resources for teachers, so I'm a bit out of my element today. And if I seem a little awkward in terms of presenting this, I'm hoping my panelists will guide me through this and, and help as we go along. Uh, one Learning Community provides a service to state and regional education agencies by uh, sourcing, uh, curating, and distributing targeted resources. Uh, these would be for teachers to use in the classroom, I presume. Also, other supports and uh, communication support for people who are doing things online. Uh, and they are also trying to create communities of learning, and that this is a way of connecting teachers from diverse areas. And this, I think, is a nationwide effort. Uh, it certainly can be at a state effort in the U.S. Uh, this one learning community is U.S. focused. It's not a European, it doesn't understand other jurisdictions outside of the U.S. or how education curriculum and that sort of stuff are done. But certainly, because they're mostly a consulting service, they probably could adapt what they're doing to what other jurisdictions are, are requiring. Uh, the curriculum here in my, uh, where I live is uh, significantly different from the curriculum, say, in Minnesota. So this group would be more probably more familiar with the requirements of Minnesota than it would be for Alberta, Canada, or even Australia and otherwise. Uh, it was put together by educators, designers, and technical developers uh, to increase available educational resources. And uh, they call it a platform, uh, but I still think of it as a consulting group who have technical expertise and logistical expertise to organize online resources for state and local education administration. So they will take your resources that you already might have and put keywords into them and give search access to them and allow people to access them easier and to get that stuff into the hands of teachers. They may not even be aware. And they can also facilitate teachers having their own list of resources particular to what they want to teach. Uh, which would be a melding of things they're already aware of and some things they might have discovered through searching through this, this resource tool. Um, I guess it might be useful to take a look at their website. Um, and if I got to caution you, I'm not selling this to anybody. I don't endorse the product because I don't use it. 
and it was brought to our attention by other people who thought we might have an interesting discussion about it. So what I'm going to do now is, is uh, attempt a, a share. And if I can do a share and it works, that'll be great. I'm hoping people are seeing that now. Okay. Uh, this is the About Us page, and uh, they talk about believing in equitable access to high-quality education, that they help state and regional educational in agencies, that they help site and district leadership teams connect together with day-to-day -day work practitioners, support the growth of a thriving educator community, and uh, break down isolated practice, uh, amplify the outreach and impact of quality professional development programs, and they design networks for uh, data-driven, diverse, and open learning resources. Apparently, it's a woman-owned small business, which is interesting. And these are the three principal people who put together the organization and uh, run it. Looking at what they do, um, they do digital support. Uh, and they think they're going to be able to help you improve teaching through shared practice, um, increase access to more diverse learning resources, uh, data, uh, scaling high quality. Uh, these are all good buzzwords. These are all good uh, instructional buzzwords for academics and that sort of thing to be able to, you know, make the case for this stuff. So I, I'm not comfortable with some of the uh, wording here. Uh, but they want to sort of enhance operational capacity. So there is that part. Uh, they're all about designing systems that help agencies handle their strategies, the effort, the teams, and uh, the distribution of resources, once again. Uh, they want to help connect, communicate, and coordinate. They uh, support thriving communities of practice, and they want to amplify the scope and outreach and impact of quality professional development uh, in the sense that this is a learning platform rather than a learning management system. They have a platform description and that description includes four major areas, resource management, group management, communication management, and professional development. And you've heard all that already through some of the uh, previous pages I've been reading. Uh, but it is sort of helpful to have a communication management consulting group and they can help you figure out better ways of, of communicating. But also professional development. I, I think that's a focus that a lot of agencies and state uh, governing bodies uh, may like having help with or might want to, and I dare I say, sort of outsource that kind of stuff. But I don't know how much of that is going on already. And so I can't compare what they're offering with what's already available in some state agent. Uh, and lastly, I think uh, they have some um, philosophical positions that they have. And uh, some of their recent thoughts, of course, are, you know, letting people know that they've done systems for all kinds of people in California and in Alaska, and they've had some very good results with those programs. And if you want to explore further into it, of course, the website offers you a chance to sort of look into it and maybe get in touch with them about what your needs are going to be and what they are offering. So I'll stop the share now. And what I wanted to do next was to delve into this, um, asking our producers uh, if they've been triggered by this and want to ask more about it. I don't know how much I can talk specifically about um, the one learning 
um, community platform, but I think in the sense of this is just one service provided by one group of people, I'm not aware of how many others there are out there. And if you are aware of them, we'd love to have you bring those to our attention. And also I'm gonna open the discussion to our panelists to delve into sort of the, the layer of usefulness. Uh, does this provide a useful service and uh, would they want to advocate for this for their own jurisdiction and their own area? So uh, I have a few hands up now and I'm gonna start with uh, Aaron. So have to be completely honest here. I'm not super familiar with this um, this product. I was looking on the website earlier as well. Um, our learning management system uh, is kind of a split between Google and a program called Aspen. And it, we're able to make connections with parents, take attendance, things like that. But on the Google side of things, we're able to share things with not just students, but teachers in our district and we're able to communicate with both parents and students. So I feel like that's kind of a place where everybody comes together for learning, but I'm not super familiar with the one learning community. Okay. John Preno. Oh, didn't mean to raise my hand there. I thought, I thought that was the one where we all raised our hand. Oh, I see. Just to be a part of the talk. Okay. John Snyder. Yeah. I've also never, don't have direct experience with one learning community, but um, it's interesting that they market themselves as a, a non-LMS or learning management system because it has a lot of similar functionality. And learning management systems are basically a way to document and track learning objects and their completion. So a learning object could be a video or a document or a test or an e-learning module. And a learning management system would allow you to categorize those, assign them in learning paths to your students, um, and oftentimes even allow you to share them publicly. And what one learning community has done is taken a lot of the social functionality and the sharing functionality and really emphasize that. And during the pandemic, they talk about how teachers, they wanted to be able to share resources easily between teachers and have, for example, a single source of truth. If you've ever tried to email something to someone else, you know, it changes over time as people make their small edits. Uh, something like an LMS or one learning community can help you have a single source of truth. They wanted to be able to share it to families too, and not just within teachers and having external sharing. And some LMSs allow that and others don't. And if you, um, just a general history of LMSs and what's been popular. At first, they really started as just a repository for uh, learning objects. So um, assignments, a list of assignments that students would go through and submit electronically to their teacher. And then they would add things like lectures and the ability to do virtual meetings, essentially. Uh, reporting quickly became important for learning management systems. So you could see who's completed what, when, and keep track of grades, that sort of thing. And then around there, early to mid 2000s socials became a really important aspect of those where there was chats, threads, uh, discussion boards, um, that sort of thing. And one of the first early ones was one called Blackboard. It, it's still around. Um, eventually, as it went from education specific into corporate specific, LMS has really started focusing on curation. So instead of having one person build all the materials, how do you make it easy to find external materials and share them internally and track them? And that's still a really common feature in many LMSs. Uh, and, but the current state of today is what most LMSs are really highlighting is their ability for peer creation. So the students themselves can create learning objects and make it easy to share and categorize, especially using AI, 
to identify what learning objects are helpful and uh, what might be interested to the learners. Uh, and a common one in the corporate world or one that's growing quickly is one called Viva Learning. It's a Microsoft product, which is, allows you to have all of those features within the organization itself. Uh, it's not specifically an LMS either, but it has a lot of the same functionality. So those might stir some of our producers to ask questions generally about LMSs uh, or more specifically about one learning community. Okay, thanks. Chris? Well, it seems to me that um, this one learning community operation uh, has has jumped on the bandwagon of uh, professional learning communities, PLCs, which have been in existence under that name for 20 years or so. Um, professional learning communities started out as teacher-directed um, conversation groups, essentially. Um, and my involvement with it, with it was early in which uh, the spirit was, uh, let's take charge of our own professional development rather than uh, accepting what the vice superintendent for professional development curriculum thinks we need, we teachers need. Um, so it was a bit on the margin, um, almost like a, an underground movement that where teachers got together in their homes or apartments or coffee shops and um, made sense of their experiences and traded tips and and uh, encouragement um, to one another in a in a challenging profession where uh, teachers at the time and and still are not treated with the professional respect that I think they deserve. So what I see, uh, I'm a little paranoid about this. It seems to me that this one learning community operation is a way for uh, superintendents and even state superintendents or state departments of education to uh, begin to manage these professional learning communities, to uh, get them out of off the margin and into the center of um, top-down management by uh, the administration at various levels. And I'm a little leery about that, as you, as you might have detected, um, whether it's a good thing for the spirit of professional learning communities mm -hmm. run by the professionals themselves who are members, or whether it's a good idea to, uh, as it were, institutionalize these um, little communities and, uh, and try to standardize them in various ways in the name of efficient, I, uh, efficiency. In, uh, in high school, I, I came into a restaurant once to find a whole lot of the teachers I knew gathered around a very long table. And I think I may have come across one of those subversive groups who just were doing their own thing and not doing it in the school, uh, just as you described. Um, does anyone here see the advantages claimed on their website as being helpful to yourself or colleagues or more, becoming more effective educators? Okay, nobody here feels that there's anything to say on that score. Um, I don't know if I'd be comfortable uh, if my uh, provincial education arm decided to outsource some of this stuff. So 
I don't know if I'd, um, as a parent now, uh, be happy to find that the teachers are being uh, forced to use, or not forced, uh, recommended to use the uh, service that's provided outside of the, its own institutional controls. Maybe I'm just, I'm old school that way. Uh, Chris, and then John. One of the uh, issues involved is that context is very important. And it seems to me that the one learning community, even its title, uh, suggests that we're, we're trying to standardize the learning community across the entire state, for example. Um, and yet in, in South Boston, the issues that teachers are talking about and wrestling with are different than the issues uh, right across the border in Rhode Island or in, in, uh, in Western Massachusetts and so forth and so on. And so I, again, I think that the effort to, to standardize and centralize the management of other people and their, their communities and conversations is probably uh, costly for the individuals in a, a literal community, a, a residential community, a place where the issues are different than they are uh, one community over. That's a good point. Yeah, there are specific differences between communities. So except as a professional community and a large sort of national very large group of people who want to share ideas about education generally. Uh, I don't believe, yeah, you couldn't talk um, comfortably about your own specific curriculum needs as opposed to those in another state with some other uh, educator. John? Yeah, and I know that this particular product does have the ability to create affinity groups, and that could be based on location. So I think a lot of those features could be used there. And I, it seems to me like it's an attempt to add structure uh, and become a library rather than a curricula. But I, one of the side effects of adding structure is you add limitations also. And uh, I'm curious to know, Dr. Clark, when you were early in your education career, how did you form those relationships uh, nationally or, or with further borders um, outside of just local? And is this something that would help maybe cross some of those sorts of boundaries? Chris, to respond? Well, it was a long time ago. Um, I don't even think we had email when we started um, a teacher conversation group in Michigan in, in a particular district um, where the teachers knew each other and we spent a year um, practicing conversation. Conversation is at the time and maybe still is not an automatic skill. Um, in any case, we spent a year uh, studying the teaching of writing. That was our cover story, at least, uh, at three different levels, at the high school and middle school and elementary school levels. And um, we came into conversation with a group of six or eight um, teachers at, at those different levels. And we had something to talk about. Of course, the idea was to talk about the, the teaching of writing and how it works at, at different levels of schooling. 
And of course, when you get teachers together, they don't always talk about what you, the researcher, wishes they would talk about. So we talk about everything. And we learned that that's what a community needs to keep a conversation going. It's not just a focused, narrow uh, talk about one topic. It's it's about their whole uh, holistic experience locally of being a professional in this context. Mm-hmm. And so we, d- we did the groundwork for a couple of years, and then uh, we shared that description of what we were doing, what we were learning with uh, other uh, researchers at conferences, at national conferences. So we met people there, thereby who also were interested in conversation, were interested in uh, local communities, self-organized communities that were really driven more by the teachers than by the researchers or by the university people. And in that way, our, our, um, our contacts, our network grew across North America and over in, uh, in the Mediterranean area as well, where we had uh, like-minded colleagues. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a seven-year process. So I th- perhaps that answers your question, John. It takes time. That right, John? Yeah, it's interesting. Thank you. Okay. And Aaron? I just wanted to hop back really quickly to what um, Dr. Clark said. I completely agree, Chris, in the sense that the concept of standardization of something with a product that can help centralize everything, if it's resources like a library of lessons, that's one thing. But even within my district alone, having eight different elementary schools across the city, there's while we try to standardize as much as we can, we all have very different populations from socioeconomic um, to whether we, they need more support um, with disabilities or um, English language learners. So just in one city, it's difficult to have standardization, never mind across the entire country. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, for our producer community, um, the doors are open for your questions to come through and we'll give whatever attention we can to them uh, we have one waiting in the wings right now uh, john do you want to give us that question our first question is from douglas carmichael what specifically does the one learning community do it seems like it's a clearinghouse for techniques and sharing content uh, my first impression when I read the pages were that they were trying to help people who were already struggling with technology and uh, access to information that would help their teaching. And if they expanded that to doing community work and, and giving teachers a, a an education community to identify with or to share ideas with, uh, that was a noble pursuit as well. Um, I can't as as you're hearing probably from our panel now, we can't quite fathom its return on investment. Uh, there's no indication on the website what it would cost to engage these people with a state education board or some county board. Uh, we don't know what their uh, services uh, offer in specific terms. We get general terms off the website, but there's there's no way without having a conversation with the three principals to find out what motivates them or 
how they think they're providing a service. So the question about what it does uh, is still an open question in my mind. And maybe others on the panel have a different view of that. But uh, it seems, as you say, a clearinghouse, uh, a place where they've got a cross-connection with many people they've worked with that have resources that they've cataloged and uh, identified and, and tagged, and that those resources can then be cross-connected to other jurisdictions. And in a larger sense, maybe over 10 years, this becomes a more comprehensive library. Uh, but also they wanted to have more technical means to share content and maybe imposing some methods or standardized practices across various other jurisdictions to see if that helps the situation. I think there's an impression people have when it comes to Zoom or uh, Zoom kind of teaching that there's one way to do it or there's the best way to do it. And we're still emerging. We don't know yet how this is having an impact on students. We know they love to watch YouTube. We know they love to watch TikTok. We know students are engaged in all kinds of searches on the on the net about things they want to have or uh, what the best bicycle to have is. And, and they've got skills in that regard, which don't translate well to their homework or their schoolwork. Or, and we try, and I'm sure teachers are doing this all the time, trying to make it part of the, the daily uh, exchange of information that a classroom is supposed to have. So in the sense that this is, yes, a, a library building kind of thing and a, and a hopeful community building kind of thing, we haven't quite identified the need for it from what they say on their website. And certainly in my mind, I haven't identified a place where I can't live without what they offer. So um, perhaps, perhaps there's something more that I'm not getting from what they have, but I think on the surface, um, it's a nice, noble pursuit, but I'm not sure anyone here today would want to work in their platforms. So uh, maybe someone in our producer community does think this would be a good idea and could defend it. So I'm going to uh, let John jump in here. Um, yeah, from the chat, John Edelson is saying the OLC team created the Smithsonian Learning Lab, which and he's working with them to get their resources out to teachers or that's what they their function is to work with a lab to get resources out to teachers. Maybe um, I will say one of the the main things they tout is creating networks within teachers, and so it's it's not just a library. It's also um, sharing best practices uh, with teachers with common interests, and, and they the way they categorize their information, they do add a lot of metadata. So you can say this resource is primarily for third grade or that sort of thing is, is my understanding. Um, so those are some additional features, not more than just a library. And that is a service to teachers in the sense that nobody's got time to go into all of the available resource libraries and start giving it metadata and giving it more searchable uh, characteristics. So if they were simply hired to be able to do that sort of thing for a, a state department or otherwise, then uh, maybe it is a service that would be worthwhile. Next question. Our next question is from Bob Sturdivan in San Antonio. Bob asks, on their website, they say, we help site and district leadership teams get connected with the day-to-day work, day work of practitioners. What have been the major hurdles? I'm not in the field, so I'm not qualified to answer that question. But if someone on the panel would like, uh, maybe they can identify one or two of the hurdles. You want to try it, John? Yeah, I, I'm sure just in my own personal experience, the hardest thing about categorizing 
anything is being comprehensive and uh, making sure things information's updated, making sure that people are using it, and lastly, making sure that the stuff that's helpful bubbles to the top. And I'm assuming they're using some sort of algorithm for that sort of thing. But I can almost guarantee that's the hardest thing is making sure the best quality content is what people find easily. Yeah, you're mentioning algorithm kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies here because algorithms, by the very nature, only serve the person who built it. So, Aaron, you've got a thought? Based on the question, I'm, I'm hoping I'm reading this right. Thinking about district leadership teams getting connected with day-to-day practitioners, I'm thinking about my principal and vice principal, as well as my superintendent and assistant superintendents um, coming around to visit sites. And I'm thinking that if they're when, whenever they're trying to implement something in our classrooms, we obviously try to use it with fidelity to the best of our abilities. But then I guess the biggest hurdle is that stuff happens. Behaviors happen, assemblies happen, um, um, shows, um, I'm trying to think of the word I've already forgotten. Sometimes our PTO will have little events for us to go to during the day that's educational. Exactly. And it's like, so if they're, if we're trying to stay on the same page as, you know, the rest of the district, but something's happening in one specific classroom that's going to throw everything off, that's kind of an issue with day-to-day work is that they might come in expecting to see us working on, you know, ABC, but we could still be, you know, pre-alphabet at that point of the day based on how the kids come into school. So we have to look at them, you know, socially and emotionally and kind of see where they're at in order to start where we're supposed to be. Thanks. So hopefully, Bob, that, that gives you some perspective there. We'll have the next question. Our next question comes from Brian Schwartz in Baltimore, Maryland. What do you find the most effective strategies and software tools for teaching writing to middle and high school students? Chris? Well, I don't know about software tools, but um, two strategies or two facets of successful writing for younger kids. One is for them to be writing about something that they know already. So it's not a story starter that is irrelevant to their lives and their background experience, but it's an invitation to go deeper with uh, knowledge and interests and experiences that they already have to make sense of those in a way that communicates to somebody else, not just to themselves, but to uh, someone who doesn't have as deep and broad uh, an exposure to these ideas that they are um, writing about. The second and perhaps even more important big idea of successful writing teaching is to rewrite and edit and work on a piece of writing for uh, at least three or four drafts, three or four versions, no matter how good the first draft is to the, uh, or how adequate it is to the standards expected. Um, It can be improved. It can be shortened. It can be focused. You can address questions about your audience and what they know and how you might have to change the way you say what you're writing about to connect with the background knowledge of your expected audience and so forth. So far too many times in my experience, 
uh, students get one shot at submitting um, a piece of writing for a grade, and then we move on to a different genre or a different assignment. And they're stuck with whatever grade they got rather than the experience of revising and editing and, and incorporating feedback, including from peers, by the way, who might be the audience. Um, so those are my two tips for uh, doing a little bit better at this very difficult process of teaching writing. Erin? Mm -hmm. I'm going to second Dr. Clark here and say, I don't really know about the software tools per se, but the some strategies that have worked not only in elementary school, but even through high school, um, letting students collaborate on one piece of writing has been very beneficial. So the technology could be as simple as colored pencils in a piece of paper or Google Doc or some sort of shared document. And students will pick a color that is their color and their color only. And you can set a timer and have a specific topic in mind, especially for middle and high school students or a picture even. And say maybe 90 seconds to two minutes per writer you set the timer, the first person, maybe they're writing in red, will go first. And then everybody is watching what they're writing. And then when the timer goes off, the second student, maybe they're using green, will pick up their pencil and they'll continue the story or the concept from where the first person left off. That way, people are getting ideas from others in their group, as well as continuing on a story and building on to that knowledge. So that's one strategy. And then another one that I found from Edge of Protocols was um, something called the three times genre challenge. Mm -hmm. And so it's taking a topic that you've learned about. So maybe the American Revolution and you write a quick story paragraph in three different genres. So if you've taught narrative, if you've taught informational, if you've taught um, opinion writing, you can have them use the same topic and just write in three different contexts with the same topic. So that way they're getting to know and understand the concepts of writing in a specific genre, but they're not struggling to learn something new because they already understand the topic. Yeah, that's a key. That writing is different than the content you're writing about. Yeah. Next question. Our next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. Is there a set of standard technical specifications for content submitted to the OLC? I'm not sure OLC has standards or imposes standards. I think every uh, state educational institution probably has its own standards for submitting or what they consider to be usable resources. So. I think they're in a position to take existing resources that any jurisdiction has, uh, give them metadata tags and and cross connections to allow people to to access them more easily. And so I think in the sense that um, you know if you're looking for standard technical specs that that's a net level higher than OLC. and the online learning people are just going to take whatever requirements that jurisdiction is asking for and then fit their their work into it. Uh, I think 
they had a project in Alaska that was a very small school, and then they've all they've done also very large jurisdictions in California. So I think they can scale to anybody's particular regional concerns or, or interests and what resources they've acquired, and they can also maybe offer other resources they're aware of and make them fit into that that pile. So I, I guess in the sense that there is no standard that I'm aware of that would sort of govern uh, what they can do with the resources, but uh, maybe I'm wrong and there are. John? Yeah, they definitely advertise being able to accept uh, documents of various sorts, including, I'm assuming, PDFs and Word documents and video. A lot of these types of platforms will enable external links as well. So it, even if it doesn't get hosted there, they can share it and uh, track it. You sh can also build what looks like HTML5 websites, which to me tells me it's likely able to also run SCORM e-learning modules. I, I don't know that particular one, SCORM e-learning, but those are based off HTML5 um, standards. There we go. Next question. Our next question is from Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio. If you were tasked to set something like one learning community up, how would you go about it? Well, I think the first thing is to hit the contact us button, send them an inquiry and have them get back to you. Uh, then you can engage them in a one-on-one, -on -one, uh, either through a text conversation or even a phone call and uh, get some of the explanations and answers to those questions, some of which we've heard today uh, answered. And certainly you could, you know, they're, they're not going to want to talk about the cost of things until they know the scope of the project. They're not going to talk about, uh, you know, what techniques they're going to apply or what kind of technologies they'll apply until they've heard more of what your need for resources are. Uh, but I think, you know, how would I go about it? I'd, I'd sort of treat it as any other major source supplier of services to me uh, and engage them in a back and forth about how, what my needs are, and then for them, what services can fulfill those needs. So in that sense, that's where I'd begin. Uh, but I, I've kind of done that with some other service providers too in the corporate and, a, and higher education area. Uh, and, and I find it they're usually very responsive. Now, if these people are in a background of education, it shouldn't be too hard to talk to them and, and for them to understand what I'm describing as, as what my needs are going to be or what my students' needs are going to be. Uh, we'll go to the next question then. Our next question is from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. Are we coming to a time when the learning process is driven by tech company offerings and not educational institutions? And would this mean that schools that adopt the latest and greatest can have an advantage over schools that must comply with... I don't know how the sentence ends. Uh, with approved uh, materials, perhaps. Oh, probably approved, um, yeah. Yeah, Gordon, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, idea um, in that you know, more more recently, we've had to go toward tech companies to get things done uh, because of the distance and the uh, non-contact kind of learning we've had. Uh, it sort of exposed uh, parents and teachers and administrators to other options, uh, but they're not going to build them in-house, are they? Um, same as I don't have my own house for building a car that I can drive. I ask... Uh, car manufacturer to provide me with some options and then I pick and choose from them. So if the company is starting to offer um, tech-driven kind of solutions, 
they're going to have to educate themselves a lot about what the requirements and what students need and what teachers need. Uh, in the in the service sector, this is a natural process. You have to examine your market and determine what their needs are and then start tailoring your expertise pool of experts uh, to be able to respond to those things. Aaron? As much as I love using all the technology in my classroom, if educators are going into education for the right reasons, which most of them are, we don't need the tech. Is it helpful? Yes but we should be able to take a book, go sit outside, read a chapter, talk about it, show a picture book, make connections, um, have some chalk on the sidewalk and be able to do math, science, we should be able to look around, you know. So as much as I think the tech industry is coming up with some great, great products, both hardware and software that can help students um, from general ed to those that need some more supports. I think overall, it's the human aspect. It's the teacher in the classroom that's going to be able to reach all of their students and be able to give them success because there are many districts that don't have the money to get Promethean boards or to get certain materials, but the teachers are still teaching. It's not like they close down the schools because they don't have the technology. So as much as the tech is fantastic. Most teachers can do without, if needed. I can speak from a personal perspective that uh, one of my nieces um, is being instructed in in sort of the classroom of the outdoors. Um, the school itself is run with the idea that students have to leave the room once in a while to engage with the outside world where learning can happen. And certainly I've been advocating the project approach since the uh, last year, uh, that is where it's a student-driven inquiry and that they develop a project they want to pursue and use the whole year to follow up on it and learn all of the elements required in the curriculum, but in a context that isn't sort of chalk and talk. And I think in the sense that technology companies may be just trying to take the classroom into the computer or bring all these computer features into the classroom, they might be barking up the wrong tree here because we're learning more and more that students engage with things when they do things. And if they're going to be just sitting in front of a keyboard at school as they are at home, or they're going to be looking at iPads at work and at home and the school, uh, maybe they're missing out on something there. John? Uh, first of all, here, here, Aaron, that was a fantastic answer. Secondly, I think one of the struggles we'll see is as schools are trying to navigate the future, they're going to need to continue to provide more education to more students with the same or fewer resources. And they'll look to technology to solve those problems. And technology will promise to answer them. And um, that is, I think, the, the struggle for schools of the future is to be able to, to navigate that to provide the best education to students in a way that uh, no child gets left behind, to borrow a cliche. Let's try this next question. Our next question is from Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. How do you think the OLC folks would categorize and document the resource that Office Hours Education Saturdays, and would that change anything about OH Edu? We're a uh, 
producer-driven community of people interested in education in every context, not just in schools. Uh, so I'm not sure OLC or the folks at OLC would be able to categorize what we're doing because it's somewhat new and it's somewhat amorphous at this point. We haven't locked it into a, a sort of pattern yet. Um, the Saturdays I don't think would change uh, in the sense that, you know, we're we're constrained by the availability of some people. We're constrained by uh, office hours uh, crew who support us and the people uh, who volunteer to work the system for us. Um, I don't know if they categorize the documents and resources. The, we don't operate with a lot of documents. I think John and I uh, are working with one Google Doc for everything we're doing, and uh, we scroll back and forth on that all the time. So. I don't know that we're providing any resources to educators directly. We're exposing them to conversations about it and maybe giving them hints about where to look for other other opportunities or resources or connecting with other people who we have on. Um, I'm open to the panel commenting on this as well because I'm, I'm not sure it would change what we're doing. All right. Well, that takes us to the end of this one today. We're we're finishing a little early because there's um, the producers seem to not find uh, any any further useful questions about it, and we're certainly trying our best to answer some of them. But uh, I, I think this was a, a a way of exposing us to what the One Learning Community um, Service offers and uh, give us a, a little bit of an overview. But it, it looks to us that there's not a great deal of enthusiasm for it that I'm perceiving. Uh, we have a last question from Douglas Carmichael. Uh, John? Douglas Carmichael says, I remember a long time ago the use of ISDN and or T1 lines for multi-site video conferences. Could you see multi-site events as helping to build a learning community? Well, I've actually seen this happen. Uh, it was at the, uh, a high level of government. It was, uh, uh, they call it human ser services here, but it was really children and family services. They have a uh, hundred offices across uh, the entire province. Uh, they found it very helpful for uh, multi-site video conferences to be held, both for a deputy minister to be able to address all the managers at once and they didn't have to travel all the way to one city and stay in hotels and attend uh, you know, various meetings. They could do it all from their desk and at times uh, continue to do their email answering while waiting for their turn at the meeting. Uh, we found it useful uh, for training the staff and giving them an opportunity to be exposed to more uh, information that would help them do their jobs more effectively. Uh, there were some sessions where we had 100 uh, connections and the 100 connections were able to clearly see what was being presented. Uh, watch the discussion locally at the uh, venue that this was being presented at, and then we were able to bring their questions in occasionally. Although we didn't have a Mukana in our service or any system for elevating questions to the front of the line, but I think uh, the experience for them was for them to be able to share the idea between themselves after the meeting was over. They were able to participate as a group from their venue and then uh, go back to their offices, uh, you know, just down the hall and be able to talk about what they learned immediately. 
it was supported by other materials, which were distributed before the meeting and then follow-ups uh, that were done afterwards, as government does all the time. And there were evaluations of it as well. Uh, in the uh, end-of-year report, uh, it was found that the whole operation saved about $6.5 million in the budget because travel wasn't required. Uh, an offshoot of that was that um, the training programs for foster parents, which used to be done in person, was transferred to video conferencing. Uh, the advantage we had in Alberta was that the government, uh, sometime in the late 80s, uh, installed fiber to every single community uh, in the whole province. This is every small town had a fiber connection. And if you went to a facility like a school or a library um, or a civic building, uh, you could tap into this, this fiber network and participate at, at a high level and with clear video. Uh, they found that they could have parents at local areas not travel into the major centers to get their foster parent training, and they were able to effectively transfer uh, communicate to them uh, how to be a foster parent over video conferencing with certain examples, role play, and all that sort of stuff. And it was the same workshop stuff they were doing in person, except it was in a, a large room with uh, cameras, that PTZ cameras, that would follow the action. Um, I, I see lots of potential here. I do. And I see it uh, being adopted widely, perhaps, at the government and corporate level, and then later applied to uh, education. But I've also seen with uh, telehealth uh, that we're teaching a lot of medical students things at a distance. And uh, those things are emerging and, and the multi-point uh, conferencing is actually uh, becoming a useful, useful tool. And we should advocate probably here and elsewhere for more of that to happen. Uh, Chris, you've got a remark? Just a remark. Um to uh, Douglas's question, I think that multi-site events, uh, I mean, office hours is an example of a multi-site event, as far as I can tell. And we have built an online community that has, we've always, often remarked at how uh, surprised and pleased most of us are at how uh, connected in a community uh, we participants in office hours have become. And yet, I think it requires the the daily or in the case of education hour, a weekly uh, participation in these uh, conferences, frequent participation for them to really develop the kinds of connections and friendships uh, and uh, self disclosures uh, that make for a coherent community. I think in the case that uh, Douglas described, where essentially there are meetings or session, training sessions, if you will, um, occasionally, those can be those can build stronger learning communities in the local settings. But I don't think they would become uh, a statewide uh, community, for example because they're not as frequent and the context is different in each place. And so the issues discussed are may or may not be relevant uh, to everyone involved in these uh, multi-site meetings. 
Thanks, Chris. Well, uh, I just want to thank you uh, all uh, for joining us, um, all the people who participated today, who gave us the questions, uh, our panelists for today, and um, acknowledge that all the committed people who volunteer every day to operate office hours and after hours for all of us. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, all you guys uh, for providing insight and giving us uh, things to think about in your questions. You can join us again next week when we'll provide some guidance on how to make a video for classroom use. There are always people in after hours all day and all night ready to lend a hand with any kind of online issues you might have. And after hours can get you a quick answer, most of the time, to nearly any technical question you might have. So look forward to seeing you next week on Education Hour. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone. I knew it was going to be a little thin today because it is so specific, but it was a producer's suggestion, so we're going to keep doing that sort of thing and just see how many people jump in. Uh, John, you and I apparently have something just after this. You're able to attend? Okay. Um, others are welcome to join us, I think. So if you want, if you have the time to stick around after ten, once the stream is off, uh, we'll be able to conduct that. So no need to jump. You're saying you have to go, Harshid. <laughs> <laughs>